This morning, our sermon will come to us from a man from RUF at Tennessee Tech, Gavin Breeden, who has been a great friend to our church. Uh, he's uh, preached for us several times, um, a couple since I've been here at least. And um, as Dave had just prayed for us, we support uh, this organization pretty thoroughly. Um, RUF, if you don't know, is the branch of our denomination that tries to be a witness for Christ on college campuses throughout the nation. And we support every single one of them that's in the confines of our presbytery, which is quite large. And we're happy to have you, Gavin. Thanks for coming. Uh, Gavin comes from Tennessee Tech, and uh, we really appreciate you being here. Well, it is wonderful to be with you all again. I've been here so many times now, I'm not sure. I've lost track of how many times it is. I think this is maybe the third or fourth time that I've been with you, so um, it's always a pleasure to come to Clarksville, and um, I was telling someone just before this, I grew up in Martin, Tennessee, and so being on the west side of Nashville, you know, feels like home to me. Even though this is not quite west Tennessee, it still feels, uh, it still feels nice to be um, in more familiar ter- territory. Um, but it is wonderful to be with you all, and uh, I just finished my second year at Tennessee Tech, um, ministry seems to be going well. I feel, you know, that I've really kind of figured out my campus, or at least almost figured out my campus. Uh, college students are, are a real joy. They're, it's a very dynamic kind of ministry. Things are never quite the same for very long, and so we've we've really been enjoying being in Cookville and being at Tennessee Tech. Um, and so this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter four. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you, thank you for, um, thank you for. Praying for us. Every time I'm here, I know I hear you guys pray in the intercessory prayer for us. I'm sure y'all do that. Um, you know, whenever I'm not here too. Uh, at least I assume you do. Um, and so I'm very thankful for your prayers. Thankful for your donations. Very thankful. It's 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 encouraging to know um, when I'm on the campus, when I'm having a hard day, that there are people who care about this ministry, who care about the college students of Tennessee Tech, who care about me. Um, who care about RUF, and so I'm very thankful for that, thankful for you. So this morning we are looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. This is God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again and ask him for his help. Our gracious Father, we do come to you this morning and we, we need your help. We need your help um, to understand your word, to rightly understand it. We pray this morning you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive your word. 
Lord, we confess to you that we have hearts that are hungry and hearts that are thirsty and hearts that are restless. And we pray for rest for our, our hearts, rest for our weary souls, that we would find our rest, we would find our satisfaction in the Lord Jesus, and that you would show us Jesus this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's very fitting for me to be preaching from this passage this morning, because um, as I mentioned, as I just thanked you a moment ago for your prayers and gifts and donations to RUF at Tennessee Tech, um, that's essentially what the letter of Philippians is. It's a, it's a letter that Paul is writing from prison, but he's writing to this church, the Philippian church, that supports him, that cares for him. Um, I'm sure as a church that supports missionaries and campus ministries of various sorts, you get newsletters, you get thank you cards, you get notes like that. And that's sort of what this is. The Philippians have sent a gift to Paul while he's in prison. They sent it through this man, Epaphroditus, who had been the messenger, the carrier of the gift. And Paul is writing this letter in response to that, writing this letter of thanks to them. Now, Paul had a very close relationship with the Philippian church. He had planted this church probably about 10 years before he's writing this letter. Um, no doubt there are people in this church, there are people who are receiving this letter that Paul himself had, um, had, had, that had been converted from hear, hearing his preaching. They'd been converted through his ministry. Um, there are people who are hearing this letter that, that know Paul personally, that they love him, they care for them, and, or care for him, and he loves them and cares for, for them. Um, and they love Paul, and they prayed for him, and whenever they were able, he says, you know, whenever you're able to, they, they would send gifts to him, they would send um, care packages. We're not quite sure what those are, what that entails, but we know that they cared for him tremendously. And as I said, Paul is sending this thank you letter, but it's a bit unlike probably any thank you letter that you've ever received, that, I, not, that I've ever received. Um, because Paul essentially says here, look, thank you so much for the gift that you sent me, but I didn't really need it. I didn't really need the gift, but thank you so much for, for, for uh, sending it. I appreciate it. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's saying, look, you know, thank you so much for sending this gift. I, I know that you guys wanted to send me a gift. You wanted to, to care for me, and now you've been able to, and, and I really appreciate it. But I'm not speaking of being in need. I really appreciate it, but I didn't really, I didn't really need it. Now, is Paul being rude here? No, of course not. Um, he's using this as an opportunity, as a teaching opportunity for the Philippians, to, t to teach them about contentment. Paul is very appreciative of their gift, but he's saying, look, I, I, I would have been fine whether, whether or not this gift had arrived. Because I've learned to be content. I've learned how to be content. Contentment is almost always a good topic for us to consider because I think so few of us are, are really, truly content. If we're honest, very few of us really uh, could claim being content, right? Um, contentment is something we, we want, it's something we strive for, and yet it's very difficult to attain. And it's interesting because we live in a time and a place in which we have, have more stuff, we have more conveniences than, than ever before. Um, and, and yet, so many of us are still not satisfied. We complain about what we have, about what we don't have. We covet what others around us have. Or we look to something off in the horizon. We look to maybe the next chapter of life that we see ahead of us. And we say, man, you know, once I get to that part of life. Once I get to that next chapter, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be really, I'll be really happy. 
Our hearts are, are restless and hungry for more. More stuff, better stuff, new circumstances. So if you're anything like me, um, and I'm assuming you are, uh, then contentment is probably always a timely topic because it's something we frequently struggle with. So what is it that Paul tells the Philippians and us about contentment in this passage this morning? We're just going to have two points this morning. First, we're going to see the struggle with contentment, and second, the secret of contentment. And I realize titling my sermon The Secret of Contentment sounds you know, like I'm some guru who has all the answers uh, to life, but I really just took that from the passage. Paul himself says he's learned the secret of contentment. So um, I don't know anything. It's all from, from the Bible here. So first, let's look at the struggle with contentment. The first thing we want to ask this morning is, what is contentment? The Greek word that Paul uses here literally means self-strong. That's the kind of the root word for, for, the, for the Greek word of contentment in this passage. Self-strong. And as we're going to see in a minute, that's not entirely, that Paul does not entirely mean it the way that it sounds there, but it helps get us started, right? Being content means you don't need anything, right? Being content means that you have what you need, your needs are met, that what you have is enough, right? You're, it's sufficient, okay? Um, and we could say being content really means being satisfied, being satisfied. But maybe we want to go a step further than that. If you look on the, the quotes and notes uh, sheet in your handout there in your bulletin, I have a quote there from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, which I think is probably the best sort of succinct definition of contentment that, that's out there. And here's what he says at the top of that sheet there. He says this about contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So to summarize, Christian contentment is being satisfied with what God has given you in any moment of your life. Like when, when times are bad, when things are difficult, um, we submit to and delight in what God has given to us. Right? And that is much easier said than done. Um, I'll tell you a little story about my last 24 hours or so. Uh, as you may know, there's a lot of great storms that hit Putnam County, which is where Cookville is, where Tennessee Tech is, last night. So last night, about 8 o'clock, we were sitting around our kitchen, t- our kitchen table with some friends, and there was a, you know, the storm didn't sound that bad, but suddenly there was this loud commotion outside, and a tree branch hit our house, came through our roof, and through our dining room ceiling <laughs> uh, last night, and uh, water started to drip in, and then the, the lights went out, and the, the wind was howling, the front door burst open, the children all started screaming. It was quite a, it was quite a moment. Um, you know, I'm trying to, 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 to delight in that tree branch that's in my roof right now. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to do, right? It's easier said than done. When, when life is difficult, when life is hard, to, be, to, to delight, to be content, to be satisfied with, what, with God meeting your needs, with, with God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, it's a difficult thing to do, and that's why we struggle with it. It's hard. Um, and there's a surprising flip side to this as well. When things are going really well for us, when, when life seems good, when things are going well, we also need to submit to and delight in what God has given us instead of searching for more, instead of longing for something, something new, something fresh. So now we kind of understand what contentment is. Let's think about why it's such a struggle. The first reason that contentment is a struggle is because it's a matter of the heart and not a matter of circumstances. Contentment is a struggle because it's a matter of your heart and my heart, 
and not a matter of our circumstances. Um, Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 11 there. Look at verse 11. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is telling us here that, that contentment is just is not just a problem during low times. Um, excuse me, look at verse 12 as well. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and, and need. So Paul is saying, contentment is not just something we struggle with when times are bad, when times are, bad, when times are hard. Right? That's how we often think about it. We often think about contentment as something that's needed when, when something bad has happened to you. Right? You didn't get that job that you had applied for you really hoped you were going to get. Well, I guess I'll have to be content with where I am for a little bit longer. You didn't get into the college you wanted to go to, so you have to be content with your backup. That's sort of how we think about contentment is like learning to live with the thing uh, that I didn't want, learning to live with something that was, that was frustrating or something that was unexpected. But Paul is saying contentment is something we struggle with during both times of hunger and times of abundance, during, times, during good times and bad times, during times of plenty and times of want. That contentment is still a struggle in both of those because it doesn't depend on your circumstances. Contentment is not about uh, the things that are happening around you. Contentment is an issue. It's a matter of the heart. Um, contentment is an issue for the beggar on the street and for the millionaire in the skyscraper apartment, right? Contentment is an issue for both of those because it's a heart issue. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and maybe you're thinking, you know, life really is going well for me, right? My business is going well. My job's going well. Family situation is good. Like maybe that's where you are today. Things are going really well for you in life. And you're saying, I feel like I've got everything I've ever wanted. I know that I'm content. My question for you is, are you really when I was in college, there was a musician I really enjoyed. His name's John Mayer. Maybe you've heard of him. He's still recording music and stuff. But he released an album um, when I was a college student called Heavier Things. This was his sophomore album. His first album had come out. It had just, it just sold just millions of copies. He had made tons of money, all kinds of success. He'd won Grammy Awards. I mean, everything that you would ever want to attain. If you were a musician, he had it all, right? Famous girlfriends, awards, money, success a big you know, record contract, all this stuff. But on his second album, he, he recorded a song called Something's Missing. And he kind of goes through the song and talks about all the stuff he has. He even does a checklist at one point in the song. He's like, you know, I've got friends, I've got a beautiful girlfriend, I've got a record contract, I've got my music, my songs, I've got awards, I've got all this stuff. But he gets to the chorus of the song and he says this, but something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. Here's a person who, before the age of 30, had achieved every mark of success that he could in his field. He, he had done everything that you and I think would, would, would satisfy us, having success in your field, having money, having fame and prestige, having um, you know, respect of your, of your peers. He had all of that. And he, 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 on his second album, he says, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I'm still not satisfied. I'm still not happy. And so having everything you've ever dreamed of is not going to satisfy you. Achieving all of your goals, all of your dreams in life is not going to make you happy because you and I are sinners and we have wayward, restless hearts. And there are no circumstances that can permanently satisfy our hearts. There are no circumstances in life that will permanently satisfy us. 
They tide us over temporarily, but our hearts will be hungry again, looking for satisfaction, looking for something else, because contentment is an issue of your heart. And so when you find yourself in that station of life where I have everything, I have everything I ever worked for, everything I ever wanted and, and, and dreamed of, I have it. The problem is you still have a wayward heart that's going to be longing for something else. So that's the first struggle with contentment. Is it's a heart issue. The second struggle with contentment is what Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12, that contentment has to be learned. right? As he says there, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We have to learn contentment because it's not something that comes naturally to us. It's not something that comes easy to us. How do we learn it? Well, we learn it by walking with God through the good times and the hard times. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. We learn contentment by walking with God through both and seeing the differences there. Just like I think about, you know, I have three children. I have a daughter who's six, a son who's four, and another daughter who's 18 months. And they're learning new things every day, right? And I think about how do they learn. They learn by, I demonstrate for them how to do something, how to walk, how to talk, how to do things. And then I, I, I let them try it. And, you know, they're often, they often don't do well the first few times they try it. They often fail. Um, but it's practicing it, trying to walk over and over, standing up, pulling up, taking a few steps. And all the ways, the way, the ways that we learn things in life, that's how we learn contentment, by, by practicing it, by finding ourselves in different situations in life and by practicing contentment, by, by asking God to help us to walk with him through those moments. But we learn contentment in times of abundance by recognizing that we still find that longing in our hearts for something, something else. We still find a longing in our hearts for something more, even when we have everything. We're still looking to the horizon saying, maybe something better will come along. Maybe, maybe there's a bit more that I need. Times of abundance show us that having stuff and achieving all of our dreams, that it's not a guaranteed for satisfaction. It's not a guarantee for our satisfaction. We learn contentment also in times of great hardship by seeing that even when it feels like we've lost everything, that our needs are still met, right? That we still have enough. Before I did RUF, I worked at a PCA church in a town called Meridian, Mississippi. Um, it's on the Alabama-Mississippi state line, sort of about um, sort of the center of the state. About 90, It's like 90 miles from, from everywhere, okay? 90 miles from Tuscaloosa, 90 miles from Hattiesburg, 90 miles from Starkville, 90 miles from Jackson. And there's like nothing in that whole... That giant circle, there's nothing except Meridian right in the middle. Um, and I worked at a PCA church there for four years. I was an assistant pastor. And there was a woman in our church who, in the early 90s, she lost her nine-year-old daughter to a drunk driver. Her, her daughter was, was in a car, and a drunk driver struck them, and her, her nine-year-old daughter died in 1991. And so a few weeks ago, in late March, it was, the, it was like the anniversary of, of that event. And, and so here's what this woman from my church in Mississippi Here's what she wrote on Facebook that, that day. She said, My mind has gone back to the 29th of March, 1991. In the wee hours of the morning, about one or two, they had finished all the organ donations for Lorian. I tried to sleep on the little couch at the bedside in the hospital room as my husband, who was seriously injured, slept. We had windows that overlooked the east. Our window overlooked a Baptist church, and the steeple with its cross finally came into view with the lightning, lightning of the skies. It was a glorious, magnificent sunrise after all the thunderstorms and tornado warnings of the night before. The sun rose, and it was Good Friday morning. And my heart, of course, was shattered. But God gives us what we need at the time we need it. 
That's what contentment sounds like. Here's a woman whose whole life has just been blown up, who's lost, feels like she's lost everything. I mean, she's satisfied in God, even when, even in the midst of that, when she's experienced the worst nightmare of any parent. Um, she can say, God has met my needs. God has been with me. He is meeting my needs. The only way we learn contentment is by walking through moments like that, walking through life, good moments and hard moments, with God, and seeing the ways in which he provides for us, and seeing the ways in which he cares for us, in moments when it feels like we have nothing. So my question for us this morning is, are we really content? Is there something that you're, you're wishing deep down that you had? Is there something that you're saying, man, if I, if I just had that, then I would be happy? Maybe it's a better job or a bigger house. Maybe it's uh, children who, are, who would be more obedient. Or maybe it's that adult child that you wish would become a Christian. Maybe it's uh, a better social life, right? Maybe it's a, a better status in the community. Maybe it's that perfect body type that you really wish that you had. Maybe it's that there's a tree sticking in your roof, uh, in your dining room. Um, but whatever it is, what is the thing that you're saying, I just, if I just had that, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. All of these things seem to promise us joy and happiness, but it, it, it never lasts. It doesn't last. We get the only thing, we get the thing that, the one thing that we always wanted, the thing that we always dreamed of, we found out it's not actually perfect. It doesn't completely satisfy. It doesn't fulfill us. And soon enough, we're hungry again, looking for something else, looking for something to satisfy, something else to promise us satisfaction. So the reason that contentment is such a struggle is because it's, it's an issue of our hearts and it's something that we have to learn. It's something that does not come easy. It's something that does not come natural to us. Our second point this morning, our final point, is the, the, the secret of contentment. So as I mentioned, I have some small children. I watch a lot of kids' movies with my kids. And so I end up, I'm in this stage of life where like half of my sermon illustrations are from children's movies. And so you're going to have to just deal with that this morning. Um, and so one movie that my kids really like is Kung Fu Panda. Okay. And I like this. This is one that this is one of the rare movies that we agree on that I enjoy this movie and they enjoy this movie, and so we watch Kung Fu Panda sometimes. And if you remember from Kung Fu Panda, even if you don't, I'm going to tell you. Um, there's this in, in Kung Fu Panda. There's this dragon scroll that is said to hold the power or hold the secret to to limitless power. And Poe, who is the uh, panda, he's this chubby panda, and um, he gets he you know by some sort of weird turn of events he gets into this um, sort of elite school for um, people training to be, you know, kung fu masters and stuff like that. And, and Master Ugwe, this old turtle, identifies Poe as the, hey, he is the dragon warrior. Okay, this chubby panda is the dragon warrior. And everyone, this, is, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. This can't be right. Um, and so um, and the dragon warrior supposedly is the only one who can open the dragon scroll. Is this making any sense to you? Is this, you're all following with it? Okay. Uh, so the dragon warrior is the only one who can open this dragon scroll. And as the movie goes on, uh, they finally open the scroll. And, and you know, I'm kind of sitting here watching this movie, like, Man, I don't really want to know what's in that scroll. Like, I want to know what what's what the secret's going to be. And as they open the scroll, it's just this like reflective surface. Like, so you look at the scroll, and it's like a sort of like a mirror. And so um, 
that that's where the movie kind of lost me, to be honest with you. Like, I felt like this is kind of a, you know, it was kind of this cheesy kind of like believe in yourself sort of thing. And I was like, okay, I kind of rolled my eyes at it. It's still an entertaining movie. It's still funny and fun. But, but I was kind of like, the secret of the Dragon Scroll is just, you know, believe in yourself, that you possess the power, the secret to limitless power. And so the reason I tell you that story right now is because that seems like a very unsatisfying reveal, okay? Like an unsatisfying secret. And so in just a moment, when I tell you the secret of contentment, I'm afraid you're going to be tempted to do the same thing, that you're going to be tempted to sort of tune out and sort of say, okay, this is where I thought we were going, and turn your brain off. And so I just want to prepare you for that. So Paul tells us that he has learned the secret of contentment, and the secret is Jesus. Okay, see, that's where you thought I was going to go. That's what you were expecting. So I, I don't, don't, tune, don't turn off. Don't tune me out. Let me bring you back in, okay? Paul tells us in Philippians 4.13, it's a very famous verse, but it's a verse... That's where he tells us this, but it's a verse that I think so many people have misunderstood and, and mis, mis, uh, misapplied. So let's look at verses 12 and 13 again. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now typically, I think often we hear this verse quoted, it's, you know, it's like by an athlete on television, someone who, who just scored, you know, he just caught the winning touchdown or did some amazing thing, this amazing feat of athleticism or strength. And, and the, after the reporter says, you know, how, how did you do it? What happens? And they say, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or something like that. We kind of hear it sort of in that context a lot. And I certainly don't want to disparage a person's, uh, you know, a person's desire to give glory to God in a moment like that. I don't want to disparage that. But that is not really what this verse is talking about. Jesus is not sort of the good luck charm that kind of helps you to achieve, you know, feats of strength and stuff like that. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling us that he has learned to be content in good times and in bad times because Jesus has strengthened him to do that. He's saying, I can be okay when my entire world is falling apart because Jesus gives me the strength to do that. He's saying, I can be satisfied when everything is going my way because Jesus gives me the strength to do that. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. I can write a letter from prison about joy because Jesus gives me the strength to do that. Jesus gives me the strength to, to be joyful and to teach you about joy even while I'm in a prison. And so Philippians 4.13 isn't only for the guy who scored the winning touchdown. Okay, Philippians 4.13 is for the guy... Um, who missed the game-winning field goal, and all of his teammates hate him and are mad at him, and everyone leaves the field without speaking to him. Philippians 4.13 is for that guy, because he has the strength to, to, to be content in that moment because of Jesus. Jesus gives him the strength to be satisfied in that moment. Philippians 4.13 is also for the guy who wins the Super Bowl and is the MVP, and a few months later finds himself sitting at home thinking, is that it? I, I'm, not, I'm still not happy. I'm still not satisfied. I achieved my greatest dream and victory, and yet I'm still not content. Philippians 4.13 is for that guy as well. Paul is saying, I've learned to be content in all kinds of situations because Jesus has given me the strength to do that. How does Jesus give us that strength? What, what does that mean? Well, honestly, there are a number of things we could pull out of the Bible for how God strengthens us, okay? But one big way... That, G, that we see God strengthening his people in the Bible is through his promises. Okay? God strengthens his people through his promises. 
If we look, if you were to look back at Joshua chapter one, when the Israelites are about to take the promised land, the Lord speaks to Joshua, and that section is full of commands to be courageous, to to not be afraid, to not be to not be frightened, and it's also full of God's promises. And so, verse nine of of Joshua one ends this way: Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. See all these commands, but it follows it up with a promise. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's a connection in the Bible between, between strength, God strengthening us, and his promises. So what are, the few, what are a few promises we can think about this morning as we wrap up to, to relate to our contentment? Well, we have one in our passage this morning, verse 19. Look at verse 19 there in Philippians 4. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So one promise that can give you and me strength to be content is this, that God will meet every need that you have. God is going to meet your needs. Do you believe that? God is going to meet your needs. Notice it doesn't say, <clears throat> it doesn't say God's going to give you everything you ever wanted. God's going to give you everything you ever hoped you might have. He will meet your every need. And he will do it according to the riches in Christ Jesus. We see this also in the Psalms. Psalm 34, verse 11. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or Psalm 23, a very famous opening of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to lack. I'm not going to lack any, anything. I'll, I'll have my needs met. So when you're in hard times, you can take comfort that you'll have everything that you need. God promises to do that for you. Also, when everything's going well for you, when you're in a time of plenty, and yet your heart is still hungering for more, you can know that you have everything that you need. That you don't really need that thing you think you need. Because God has, meeting, has met your needs. God, God provides for you and cares for you. And he gives us what we need. There are so many times in life where it's easy to say, you know, you just don't understand. I actually, I really, I really need this, I really need that. Well, if you need that thing, then God will give it to you, right? He promises to meet your needs. He knows what you and I need better than we know, better than we know it. And there's another way that Jesus strengthens us with his promises. And we can see that in another passage, a verse. Um, you can turn there if you like. I'm going to read it for you, though. He Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. A verse that's sort of amazing to me. Hebrews 13, 5. It says this, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. That's the first part. And that makes sense, right? Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. That seems like that fits. Hey, don't be a lover of money, de desiring more and more stuff. Like, be content with what you have, okay? But what's amazing about this verse is the promise that follows it, the promise that, that the Bible uses to, to sort of support that command. And here's how the verse ends. Be content with what you have, for he has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice what this verse is saying. It's saying, don't be, don't be a lover of money. Be content with what you have. Again, that's an easy connection to make. But he's saying, the reason that you can, the reason that you can do this is because God has promised you that he's not going to leave you or forsake you. The need that you are wanting to have met by money, saying, if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little bit more of this or that, then I would feel secure, then I would feel, I'd feel comfortable, I'd feel happier. He's saying, look, you don't need that because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
God is saying to you and to me, you can be content with what you have because you have this promise. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to forget about you. I'm not going to leave you alone. Or the way he says it to Joshua, I will be with you wherever you go. Because when, when hard times come in our lives, the first thing we sort of think is, where was God? Where was God when that happened to me? Where, where was God when this, when this was going on? Did he forget about me? Is he mad at me? Has he abandoned me? And so the most, this is the most common promise in the Bible. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You and I can learn to be content with our circumstances because God promises to meet our needs, to never leave us, to never forsake us. So God gives us strength to be content, but he gives us something even better. He gives us himself. He gives us his presence. And how do we know that God is going to keep this promise? How do we know when God says to us in his word, I will never leave you or forsake you? How do we know he's going to keep that promise? How do we know he'll be with us? How do we know he's never going to forsake us? Here's the answer. Because Jesus has bought that privilege for us. Jesus has bought that privilege for you and for me. Last month, you know, we celebrated Easter, right? Um, Holy Week, as we call it sometimes. And that week begins with Palm Sunday. As Jesus rides into, we, we read in the Bible, we read in the Gospels, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. The people are singing Hosanna and praising. The people are laying out their cloaks and palm branches on the road. He, he's, he gets a king's welcome. And that's what he deserved, right? That's what he deserves. But just a few days later, they're stripping him. They're spitting on him. They're, they're cursing at him. They're murdering him. And that's what, that's what sinners deserve. That's what you and I deserve. But Jesus came when we were God enemy, God's enemies, and he came to make us God's sons and God's daughters. And when Jesus was on the cross, even God turned his back away, right? God turned his back on his only son, on Jesus, when he's on the cross. Why would God do that? Because that's what you and I deserve. Because we deserve that. We deserve to hang on a cross and have God turn his back. Sinners like us deserve to be abandoned. We deserve to be forsaken. And we're terrified of that. We're terrified that that's what's going to happen to us. We're going to be forsaken. We're going to be abandoned. But Jesus came and he was abandoned so we could be accepted. Jesus came and he was forsaken so that you could be adopted as a son, as a daughter of God. So when God says, I'm never going to leave you, I'm never going to forsake you, we know it's a guarantee because Jesus paid for that promise with his blood. Jesus bought that privilege for us, for you, for me. He's guaranteed it. It's a done deal. And this is something worth rejoicing over, right? Philippians is a book about joy, a book about finding joy in the Lord Jesus and being content in him, no matter what circumstances you're in. That even if you find yourself in prison for your faith, like Paul, that you can re your response can be one of joy and one of contentment. That you can submit and delight to what God has given to you. Whatever circumstance, whatever condition he has given to you, you can delight and submit, delight to that and submit to that. Because even if you've lost everything else, he promises to give you himself. He promises to be with you and to never forsake you. And even when you have everything you've ever wanted, we know that, just like the other quote on your sheet there, as Augustine said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Even if you have everything you've ever wanted, your heart is still going to be restless because your heart was made to only be satisfied in God, to only be at rest in Him. 
And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us this morning. May each of us find lasting joy in him, that we would be satisfied, that we would be content in the Lord Jesus, that we would be strengthened by the promises, strengthened to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your promises, that these promises that we know um, so well and, and they're so familiar to us, and yet um, do, they really, do they really affect the way that we live? We pray that this week that your promises, your promise to be with us and never to forsake us, that that would give us the strength to be content. Whatever situation the folks in this room may be in, whether they're good or bad, that you would give us the strength that you remind us that you meet, you meet our needs. You remind us that you're always with us. You go with us wherever we go. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.